Well, how many of you have ever stepped foot into a Blockbuster video store? Let me see a show of hands if you step foot. How many of you have never stepped foot into a Blockbuster video store? Okay, I, okay, I know there's some of you here. Some of you are like, what's a Blockbuster? I don't understand, what, what is that? Okay, I, I remember growing up, kids will never know these days what it was like to go into a Blockbuster video, a Hollywood video, and go find the look at the movies and peek behind the case to see if the movie's really there or if it was out and you had to go you know, choose a, a different movie uh, on a Friday night. I remember doing that with my family over and over and over again. And when you rented that VHS tape, some of you were like, what's a VHS? Okay, we were, we start, my generation, we started out with VHS, okay? And when you rented that VHS, what did you have to do afterwards? Be kind, please rewind, right? You had to rewind that video. Some of your kids are like, well, are we talking about like prehistoric times? What, what's going on here, okay? So then it transferred from VHS to DVD, right? And then if memory serves me right, we went from DVD to Blu-ray. And then for some reason, Blu-ray didn't work out too well. And so we went back to DVD. So, so we stuck with DVDs for a while and we transitioned from going to Blockbuster and Hollywood Video to getting them at Redbox, right? You'd go to a Redbox and they were everywhere and you could go and like a Coke machine, select the movie you want and it would spit out your movie, your DVD and you could take it home. But then you still had to take that back to the Redbox. And all the while Netflix has come up with a system where you can select your DVDs online and they'll ship it to you, but then you still have to ship it back to them, right? You had to return those DVDs. Well, eventually Netflix would turn into streaming and now there's all kinds of streaming services where we can watch videos on demand in our living room. The old ways, the old methods, the old materials that were used to watch video transitioned over time. They became new new ways of watching video would come out and they would replace the old. The old would lead you up to the new, but when the new came, you had to transition to the new, right? You had to pay the money for the upgrade lest you get left behind and never able to watch movies or video again. The old prepared you for the new, but the new replaces the old. Jesus would say the same thing about the old covenant and the new covenant. The old would prepare the way for the new, but then at the exact same time, the new replaces the old. If you got your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter five. Luke chapter five. We are going verse by verse through the gospel of Luke because we believe a little over a year ago, our church transitioned to teaching verse by verse through the scripture. We did the book of Daniel, uh, the, the, the letter to the Colossians, and now we've been doing the, the gospel of Luke. So if you ever want to catch any of those verse by verse series, they're on our podcast, they're on our app, but we transitioned to this style of preaching and studying the word because we just believe that it produces a deeper sense of faith. It produces a, a deeper sense of trust in the Lord, a deeper sense of love for the Lord, a deeper sense of mission for the mission of Jesus as we study the full counsel of word of God's word verse by verse. And our hope in studying the gospel of Luke is that every last one of us will be drawn to Jesus. We'll fall in love with Jesus for the first time. Maybe we'll fall in love with Jesus all over again. So many things in our culture are pulling us to the left and to the right. Our hope in this series in the gospel of Luke is that we will be drawn up to Jesus and fall in love with Jesus all over again. We're not just studying Luke in here. 
We're studying Luke in our small groups. Our small groups will meet this week and break down and discuss these verses with more commentary and questions and application points. We're, we're studying the gospel of Luke in our daily devotionals. This week on our app under the Bible study tab, if you click daily devotionals, there'll be a daily devotional Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, that will break down these exact same verses that we're covering with more commentary, application, questions, and prayer points all this next week. We're inviting you to study the gospel of Luke together as a family. Your kids right now in our kids class and in our youth classes are studying these exact same verses. They do every week. They study the exact same passage that we do because we're trying to create a common conversation in families around the word of God. So you could go to lunch today and you're gonna know what your kids talked about and you could ask them what they talked about. And when they're trying to fill in the blanks, you know, you can do it for them. You can have a conversation with them about it. And at the same time, we provide the table talk. It's another resource for families, for parents under the Bible study tab on our app that gives you some questions and some prayers and things that you can do with your kids to reinforce what they're learning in their class with what you learned in here today. So we're studying the scripture together. We're growing spiritually together as a spiritual family. And that's the picture we get in Acts 2, 42 to 47, a spiritual family that's committed to one another, that's growing spiritually together, that enjoys each other's company. And as I say that, I, I just want to, I, I want to say something here for just a minute. It's going to ruffle some feathers. I know it's going to upset some of you, especially if you're watching online or you're one of our podcasters. We've got about four to 600 people every month that listen online and watch our, our services back or podcast us or whatever. That's great. I'm excited about that. But I just have a word that I want to speak about that because as I say what we're doing as a church family and what the church looks like in Acts 2, 42 to 47, that we're, we're pursuing a spiritual family on mission together, growing spiritually together. You cannot get that by watching church online. That is literally impossible. You, you cannot grow spiritually together with the body of Christ, which is the way that God designed you to do the Christian life by merely watching church online or by podcasting your favorite listener. That's just content consumption. And it's a very selfish way of viewing the church. That's not church. Okay, church online is okay for a season like we experienced in COVID, a very short season, I might say. It's okay when you're sick or when you're out of town, but it is nothing to be used on a regular basis. That is not church, that is content consumption. It's a good supplement for when you're missing, but it could never replace meeting together with the body of Christ, growing spiritually together with the body of Christ. It could never replace that. We've ha we have people in our church that have been very sick, they're very immunocompromised, they can't be around anyone. I totally get it. I'm glad that we can provide church online and podcasts and things like that for people to stay connected to our church when they are that sick or that immunocompromised. But listen, if you're going to the store and you're going to tech basketball games and tech football games, then you should be in church too if you're a follower of Jesus, all right? If you have any problems with any of that, my email address is brandon at city.family. <laughs> Feel free to email me there. <laughs> All right, let, let, enough of that. Let's dive in. Luke chapter five, follow along with me. Verses will be on the screen in your own Bible or on our app. You click message notes and the verses and the points will be there for you. You can keep up and follow along there as well. Acts five, or, or Luke five, starting in verse 33, Jesus's ministry of preaching and miracles has already begun. The Pharisees have been becoming more and more prominent, as you'll see, and as we've seen, Jesus is once again gonna challenge them and speak to them again here today. I wanna remind you a couple of weeks ago what we said about the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees, one theologian has said, were more conservative than the Sadducees. Uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, there, there was uh, all kinds of different sects or denominations within Judaism. And theologians have said that the Pharisees were much more politically conservative than their other counterparts, their other denominations within Judaism. But at the same time, religiously speaking, spiritually speaking, they were more liberal due to their acceptance of their own oral law. They had elevated their own opinions and ideas and thoughts that they had encapsulated in the oral law. They'd actually written them down, their own rules and traditions. They had elevated those to being on the same level, the same playing field or having the same authority as the word of God. That's a big no-no. We don't ever elevate our own opinions and thoughts and ideas to the authority of the word of God. No, our opinions, thoughts, and ideas submit to the authority of scripture. We're informed and transformed by the scripture and not, not the other way around. And, and so they were conservative in one sense politically, but theologians have said they were very liberal in another sense in, in that they elevated their own thoughts and opinions and ideas to that of scripture. And, and so here's what I've said over the last few weeks as we've been engaging with the Pharisees here recently, that whenever Jesus speaks to or challenges the Pharisees, he's speaking to you. He's speaking to me. Anytime Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, don't make the mistake of thinking he's speaking to someone else. He's speaking to you and he's speaking to me. You see, oftentimes we like to place ourselves in the story as the disciples or as David, when in reality, it's probably more often than not we're Goliath, we're the Pharisee that Jesus is confronting. Because no matter what side of the aisle you fall on, the Pharisees fall there too for one reason or another. And so Jesus is always speaking to us and challenging us in the same time and with the same breath that he's challenging the Pharisees. All right, let's, let's, let's dive in. Verse 33, one day, some people said to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always, watch this, I love this, eating and drinking? Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? Why are your people always having fun? Why are your people always partying? They're never doing penance like this. They're never broken and upset and weeping and mourning and fasting and brokenness and dust and ashes like we did all throughout the Old Testament and all the, throughout the Old Covenant. Why are your people, Jesus, your disciples never fasting? Why are they always happy? Why are they always celebrating? Why are they always partying? Why are they always eating and drinking? And I'm sure Jesus had to be thinking, do you know who my followers are? They're a bunch of fishermen. What else do you expect from a bunch of fishermen? They're, they like to eat and drink. That's why they fish, okay? In the words of Snoop, they like to party. I think, you know, they, they likes to party, all right? But this isn't the way, right? This isn't the way Christians are portrayed, especially in our day, in our time, right? As people who, feast and celebrate and have fun and like to party and enjoy each other's company and people enjoy us and we enjoy them. Have you ever watched The Simpsons? That is not the way we are portrayed, okay? That's not the way Ned Flanders and all of his Christian friends are portrayed in The Simpsons. We are portrayed in society as a people who are the fun police. We're not, we're not the fun havers, we're the fun police. But that wasn't true of Jesus' disciples. It wasn't true of Jesus. Jesus said the Pharisees accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard, meaning he liked to eat and he liked to drink. And I know that rubs some of us Baptists the wrong way, but that's the way Jesus was viewed by the Pharisees as a glutton and as a drunkard. And they said the same thing about his disciples. Why are your people, 
Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be cool if that's what they said about us today? Why are you people always so happy and fun? You're fun to be around. I'm just not sure they're saying that about us in the society, right? Right, we're, we're the fun police. But why are you people always having fun? They're asking Jesus. Here's what's interesting. The only fast prescribed by the law was on the day of atonement, but fasting was practiced by the Pharisees every Monday and Thursday, religiously, every Monday and every Thursday. You know why? Why every Monday? Why every Thursday? What's so special about Monday? What's so special about Thursday? Monday and Thursday were the busiest days in the market. And when the Pharisees would fast, they'd make a big show of it. They'd let you know by the way their faces looked. They would look sad. They would have a sad look on their face. They would even put makeup on to make them look more gaunt, sickly. They would wear garments that were ripped and broken and torn to show that they had been ripping their garments in brokenness and in their fasting. And they did it every Monday and Thursday when the markets were their busiest to put on a show so that they would look religious. They would put on this outward show so that all the irreligious, all the unreligious people would look at them and say, look how religious, look how holy they must be because of the outward show that they would put on. Monday and Thursday were the prime opportunities to be seen. And they wanted to be seen. They wanted to be seen as holy, as religious. We said this a couple of weeks ago that the Pharisees were committed to the outward appearance of things. They were committed to the religious routine, but there was no love for God in their hearts. Right? Any of you ever been there before? Maybe some of us are there right now. We're real committed to a religious routine. We're here to check off a box so that everyone knows I came to church this week, right? I'm here to check off a box so that God knows that, 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 that I'm here this week. We're committed to a religious routine, to the way things appear, but there's nothing really going on inside of our hearts. You might be here, but you're bored to tears. Okay, that's a commitment to the religious routine, but there's no real love for God in your hearts. And so the Pharisees wanting everyone to conform to the way they do things, to even extra biblical traditions and routines that aren't anywhere found in the word of God begin to ask Jesus, why don't your people do what we do? Why aren't they conforming to this widespread practice of fasting on Mondays and Thursdays every week? Why are they not conforming to the religious routine? Verse 34, Jesus responds, he tells them why. Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? You gotta hold on to this picture. Do they do the wedding guests, do they fast when they're celebrating on the, the day of the wedding with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, from the disciples. So there's a groom who's with the disciples right now and they're gonna fast when the groom's taken away. But right now the groom is celebrating with the guest, with them, with the disciples. So what, what, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, the wedding day was the happiest day in Jewish culture. Think Jesus turning water into wine, right? So that the party can continue. So the celebration, so the feast can go on. Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding. The wedding day was the happiest day in Jewish culture. And in the Old Testament, God called himself Israel's 
bridegroom. Isaiah 62, Hosea chapter two. God calls himself Israel's bridegroom and Israel is his bride. And here, Jesus, you gotta catch this, Jesus is referring to himself as the bridegroom. He's saying, I'm the bridegroom. I'm Israel's bridegroom. Again, Jesus, once again, making a statement that he is God, that he and the father are one, that if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Jesus calls himself the bridegroom, a designation for God that the prophets used to describe God and the relationship between God and his covenant people, Israel. And Jesus says, that's me. I am the bridegroom. And so my disciples, my people are happy because the bridegroom is with them. So Jesus is saying this, it is not a time for fasting because the bridegroom is here. It's not a time for fasting. It's a time for feasting. When the bridegroom's there, when the bridegroom comes from her bride, comes for her bride, it's a time for feasting, not for fasting. The deliberate non-consumption of food, fasting, signifies a dissatisfaction with the present. In the Old Testament, typically you would fast in response to great loss, brokenness over sin or on the sin of the people, of the nation, or as an expression of hope, of trust, of faith. But here's what Jesus is saying. The thing for which hope is expressed in fasting is already present, and that's me. Jesus says you're dissatisfaction with the present. That's why you would fast in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. Your dissatisfaction, your brokenness over your sin, the, the showing of hope in the bridegroom that was to come. Jesus says, I'm here. The bridegroom's here. That which for which you have been fasting has arrived. And so it's not a season of fasting. Today, Jesus is saying in his day, in his time, today, right now, in this moment that we're reading about, Jesus is saying it's a season of feasting. But then he says something interesting. They will fast. You, you fasted for the bridegroom in hope, in expectation of the coming bridegroom. The bridegroom is here, so it's a season of fasting. But then Jesus says this, the bridegroom is going to be taken from them and then they will fast. Jesus here, as he does oftentimes, is prophesying that he is going to be taken that he's gonna to go to the cross, that he's gonna die in our place for our sin, and that three days later, he's gonna rise from the grave, and then he's going to ascend to heaven to the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit's going to come. And, and so Jesus is uh, once again saying here, he's prophesying that he's going to be taken away. He's going to the cross, he's gonna rise from the grave, he's going to ascend back to heaven. And so now Jesus is saying, while he's here on earth, it's a season of feasting, but he says, there's a season of fasting coming because I'm going back to the father. The groom's gonna be taken away. And while I'm gone, there's going to be a season of fasting and feasting. It's a season of fasting and a season of feasting. Fasting, once again, over brokenness over our sin, fasting over maybe a hope in Christ for him to do something supernatural for some sort of supernatural breakthrough for wisdom. Oftentimes people will fast asking God for wisdom over a certain decision that may be looming in the future. 
People will fast saying, God, in the same way I'm hungering for this bread, for this water, for this food, God, I hunger and thirst for you, for your presence, for your word, for your nearness. But anytime we fast, our, our fasting is with the hope that Jesus is going to meet that need, whatever it is. And so the season that you and I are in, that the disciples are in and that you and I find ourselves in because the bridegroom has been taken away, he's gone back to the father, is the season of fasting because we're anticipating nearness with Jesus once again, but it's also a season of feasting. Feasting as a picture, as a foreshadow, as a longing for the eternal feast that is to come when we will never fast again. Because see, Jesus, the bridegroom, is gonna return one day. He's gonna come back for his bride once and for all time. And the scripture says after Jesus returns, after the bridegroom returns for his bride, there's going to be a feast in heaven. It's called the wedding feast or the wedding supper of the lamb. In Revelation, we see a picture of this marriage supper, this wedding feast of the lamb. When the groom has returned, raptured his church that is alive when he returns to join with every saint in Christ Jesus that's ever existed from every people group on the face of this planet. And there will be a massive party, a massive celebration, a feast that will never end. And there will be no need for fasting ever again, just like it was when, when Jesus was here on earth because Jesus is with us, because the bridegroom is there. There's not a reason fast, there will only be feasting forever. So I think Jesus would say fasting is good, but feasting is even better. And so we fast with hope and desire for the nearness of Jesus. But every time Christians get together and eat, every time we get together and eat and drink, and you're like, what do you, what drink are you talking about? Fill in the blank. I could care less. All right. Whenever Christians get together and eat and drink, we're just practicing for the future. Every time we get around a table and we eat together and we talk with one another and we converse and we enjoy each other's company, we're just practicing for the forever feast that's going to be ours one day when the bridegroom returns. So fasting is good, but church feasting is even better. And we should, I'm not, I'm, I'm not talking about the, the suffering that you and I experience in this life because there's plenty of suffering, there's plenty of trial, but we should be a happy, joyous, celebratory people. Because even when we suffer, we suffer with hope. Even when we mourn, we mourn with hope. Because there's a forever feast coming our way when the groom returns for his bride once and for all time. Jesus goes on to say in verse 36, he explains what's going on here with two different illustrations. Then Jesus gave them this illustration. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment. So we've got new garments and old garments for then the new garment would be ruined and the patch wouldn't even match the old garment. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. for the new wine would burst the wine skins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. No, new wine must be stored in new wine skins. But no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. 
Jesus says this, the old is just fine, they say. The old is just fine. So we've got some old garments, some old wine, some old wineskins. Then we've got some new garments, some new wine, and some new wineskins. So, so what's going on? Well, let's break this down. First of all, we've got old garments, old wine, old wineskins. These are referring to the old covenant. The old covenant that contained the moral law of God, the ceremonial law of God, to be clean and holy in the eyes of God. The sacrificial system where you would bring a ram or a goat or a bull or a perfect spotless lamb that would die in your place for your sin so that the wrath of God for your sin might be appeased so that he wouldn't have to strike you dead because of the curse of the law. The curse of the law, the curse of sin is death. And so that God wouldn't kill you for your sin you would bring a spotless bull, goat, lamb, and you would put your hand on it. It would die in your place for your sin. The blood would be shed from that animal. It would be sprinkled on the mercy seat of God, the throne of God and the holy of holies to appease his wrath for your sin. So the old covenant is the moral law, the ceremonial law, the, the, the sacrificial system, the, the temple worship, all these things Jesus is saying are the old garments, the old wine, the old wineskins. Here's what the New Testament says about the old covenant. Hebrews chapter eight through chapter 10, a great survey of what the New Testament, the new covenant has to say about the old covenant and the way the old covenant points to the new covenant. Hebrews chapter eight through chapter 10. Well, in Hebrews, here's what it says. The blood of goats and bulls could never take away sin. It would make you ceremonially clean. It would appease the wrath of God for a time, but it would never make you fully right with God and it would never take away your sin. It just made you ceremonially clean on the outside, but it couldn't change your hearts. And that's what God is after. He's after your hearts. He looks past the outward show, the outward routines, and he's looking at your heart. God wants your hearts. And so Hebrews chapter eight through chapter 10 makes it very clear that these ceremonial and sacrificial systems did not fully take away your sin. It just made you ceremonially clean on the outside. It couldn't change your heart. Paul says in Romans that here was the purpose of the law, the purpose of the old covenant. He said this was so that every mouth might be stopped and that you might be held accountable to God. That the purpose of the law was to stop your mouth from ever saying, I will do better and I will try harder. That my good deeds will outweigh my de bad deeds and then God will be okay with me. That he'll let me into heaven if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. If I'm a good person, if I really do better and try harder from this day forward. No, God, Paul says the purpose of the law was to shut your mouth so that you would never say, I'll do better and try harder my way into the kingdom of God, into the presence of God, into the favor of God. That's impossible according to the law. Because as a law breaker, you could never be right with God, a perfect, holy and righteous God. So the purpose of the law, Paul said, was to shut your mouth. It was to show us our sin, that we fall short of God's standard. We fall short of God's glory. It would reveal our sin and it would show how terrible and evil and wicked our sin really is to God. And that he cannot be in the presence of sin. He cannot be in the presence of anything less than his own holiness and his own glory. 
And so that's why you couldn't approach God unless you were ceremonially clean and only the priests could do that. So the law, Paul says, shuts our mouth and it lets us be accountable to God, realizing we will never do better or try harder. We will never be good enough to have a relationship with God or to go to heaven when we die. Paul writes in Galatians that the purpose of the law was to be a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. Other words are to be your tutor, to be your guardian, that the law was to tutor us, to teach us, to train us so that we would be ready for Christ. Paul says that was the purpose of the law. It was to tutor you, it was to be your schoolmaster, to prepare you for Jesus. Paul writes in Colossians that the old covenant and all that is contained in the old covenant, Paul says, were a shadow of the reality and the reality is Christ. The reality is Jesus and Jesus casts a shadow and the shadow, Paul says, was the old covenant. That's why when you look at the new old covenant, we're going to see here in just a second, when you look at the old covenant, everything about the old covenant is a picture of what's going to happen in Christ and through Christ on that cross. And so Paul says the old covenant was the shadow. The reality is Jesus. Hebrews 10 says it was the old covenant that was a preview of what was to come. It was a preview. It was a picture. It was a foreshadowing of the reality of what was to come. Now let's talk about the new garments, the new wine, the new wine skins. This is the new covenant. The new garment, the new wine, the new wine skins are the new covenant. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God says through the prophet Ezekiel that he's going to make a new covenant. So in the old covenant that God has between him and Israel, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant and it's going to be with people from every tribe, tongue and nation. In Ezekiel 36, here's what God says about the new covenant. I'm gonna take their heart of stone out that is resistant to me and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh that loves me, that follows me, that listens to me, that is sensitive to me. So God says, I'm gonna take your heart of stone out. I'm gonna give you a heart of flesh. And then God says this in Ezekiel 36, in the new covenant, I'm gonna put my spirit inside of you. I'm gonna take your heart of stone, I'm gonna give you a heart of flesh, and I'm gonna put my spirit inside of you. In Jeremiah chapter 31, God says through Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah to the nation of Israel, he says this, this new covenant will not be like the old covenant. The new covenant will not be like the old covenant. Here's why, here's how. In the new covenant, God says, I'm gonna put my law on their hearts and on their minds. In the old covenant, the law was written on tablets of stone. God says in the new covenant, I'm gonna write my law on their hearts and on their minds. I'm gonna take your old heart out, that heart of stone that doesn't care about me, that's not moved by me, that's insensitive to me. I'm gonna give you a heart of flesh that loves me, that's has, that, that has, takes joy in my presence, that takes joy in my word. I'm gonna put a new spirit inside of you that's gonna move you to follow me and to love me and worship me and serve me. And so so here, here's the difference. 
between the old and the new. And the old, you had this external pressure. And the new covenant, God says, I'm gonna put my spirit inside of you. And there's gonna be this inner desire. There's gonna be this inner passion. There's gonna be this inner love to follow me that you didn't have before. You're gonna love my word. You're gonna love to pray. You're gonna love my worship. You're gonna love to get together with the saints of God to worship God and to pray together and hear from his word together. You're gonna love these things. Your heart's gonna beat for these things from the inside out. No one's gonna force you to do this anymore. No one's gonna have to coax you to do this anymore. No one's going to have to control you and to do the, to do the right things anymore. No, the spirit inside of you is going to move you to follow me and to obey me. It's why some of you right now are hearing these things and you're studying the word of God and you're like, yes, and your heart's moving and you're excited about it. And it's why others of you are looking at your watch wondering, when am I going to shut up and when can we get out of here? I'm just, I'm being real. Some of you are excited right now. Some of you are bored to tears. I know it. I went through the same things in my life. I was bored to tears going to church for the longest time. But then when you meet Jesus and you give your life to Jesus and you receive the Holy Spirit and you get a new heart, your heart beats for these things now. You're excited about these things now. That's the change that takes place in the new covenant. And so if that passion's not there, if that love's not there, if that fire's not there, if you're not enjoying this right now, I'm just gonna say to you, you may not be a follower of Jesus. You might not be. You might've fooled yourself into thinking you're something you're not because you've been keeping some sort of religious routine. Or you've resisted the Holy Spirit for so long. Scripture says you've grieved the Holy Spirit for so long, you've grown cold. You've grown lukewarm, you've grown apathetic. Because in the new covenant, God takes that heart of stone out and he gives you a heart of flesh heart that's sensitive to the Holy Spirit, a heart that loves the presence of God, a heart that longs to worship, a heart that longs to pray, a heart that longs to study the word of God, a heart that hates sin and loves holiness. This is the new covenant that's written on our law, our hearts, it's written on our minds, it's the spirit that's been placed inside of us. This new wine Jesus is referring to is the indwelling power and fire of the Holy Spirit. And the new wineskin is his church, it's you, it's me. We are now, Paul says, the temple of the living God. His spirit dwells inside of us. The indwelling fire and passion of the Holy Spirit, the new wine, and a new wineskin, the new covenant that God has made with the church. These new garments that Jesus is talking about are garments of righteousness. They represent the righteous standing that is yours before God if you've given your life to Jesus. Your sin has been forgiven. You've been made right with God. You've been given. The big theological word is imputed righteousness. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. But God has given you a righteous standing before him by your faith in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 says it like this. He who knew no sin became sin. That's Jesus became sin for us. So that those of us who are in Christ might become the righteousness of God. 
You see, if you give in your life to Jesus, if you're in Christ, he takes your sin and he gives you his righteous standing before God. You are holy, you are blameless, you've been forgiven, you are without spot or wrinkle or any blemish, the scripture says. Holy and perfect in the eyes of God because of the righteousness of Christ. Not anything you've done, no, 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 make no mistake. These garments of righteousness have been purchased and bought by the blood of Jesus. He earned them. And when you give your life to Jesus, you receive these garments of righteousness. In Revelation chapter seven, John has this vision of heaven and he says it's a crowd that no one could count. It's a people from every tribe, tongue, nation that's ever existed on the face of this planet. John sees this crowd, no one can count. He says they're worshiping the lamb of God, Jesus, who died in our place for our sin. And John says this, that this crowd that no one could count, that's worshiping the lamb, he said this, they were clothed in white robes, in white garments, representing the righteousness and holiness of Christ. Those garments are yours. Those robes are yours. Perfect, holy, and without blemish. But Jesus says, we've got a problem. This is the great news of the new covenant, of the gospel that's been made available through Jesus, but we've got a problem, Jesus says. Because here's what we tend to do. Here's what we tend to say. Here's what we tend to believe. The old is just fine, Jesus said. Here's what, here, here's what all of our tendencies are to do. The old way is just fine. The old covenant, the law, that's just fine with me. And in a prophetic sense, Jesus is saying that there will be those that will say, take your new wine out of here. Get rid of your new garments, this new covenant. We're good with the old. Revealing every person that's ever lived on the face of this planet, our tendency to turn back to the law. That's our tendency. We always wanna go back to the law. I'm gonna do better, I'm gonna try harder. I, I, if I cross my T's and dot my I's and, and I check all the boxes, then God will be happy with me and I'll find favor with God. And if I don't cross the T's and dot all the I's and do all the check boxes and the routines that I need to do, then, then God's not happy with me and he's, he doesn't love me. He loves me less when I mess up and he loves me more when I do the right things. You see our tendency to always go back to the law. You see our tendency in a people, in mankind, to turn to the law in that every religious system that man has ever come up with is law-based. If I do one, two, three, then I get X, whether that's something in this life or in the next. If I follow this system, if I do these rules, if I go through these routines, then I will get X. If I'm doing better and trying harder, then I'll experience whatever afterlife or reward in this life that God would have for me. Every system, every religion that man has ever come up with is law-based. Paul says in Romans 10, that's why Israel got it all wrong. They thought God's way of making someone right with him was by keeping the law, was by doing better and trying harder. Paul said that wasn't God's way. God's way is not that you go up to him. God's way is that God comes down to you to rescue you from your sin. Every religion that's ever existed on the face of this planet is do better and try harder. Do one, two, three, and you will get X. And God in the gospel says, no, that's not the way I work. I'm coming to you. 
I'm coming down to do for you what you could never do for yourself. I'm gonna live a perfect, holy and righteous life. I'm gonna die in your place for your sin, taking on the wrath of God for your sin to set you free, to rescue you from your sin. And so here's what Jesus says, we can't mix it up. It's not Jesus plus something, it's Jesus plus nothing. We, we don't take the patch of the gospel and try to put it on an old garment. We don't, we don't mix the new wine, the new covenants with any other system or way or of doing things or believing. You don't mix it up. You don't take Jesus and sprinkle it on a lot of other people's teachings and systems. This is what the book of Galatians is all about. That No, 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 you, you can't take Jesus and all of your old pharisaical laws and extra biblical traditions and mix them all together. No, it's Jesus plus nothing. To mix Jesus with anything is called syncretism. Jesus says you can't do that. You don't mix the old with the new. You don't mix Jesus in with a little bit of whatever else you want to throw in there and whatever else you want to believe. It's Jesus plus nothing. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians, that the old has been replaced with the new. There is no mixing the kingdom of God, the new covenant gospel of Jesus cannot be regarded merely as a patch over the regulations of Mosaic law and extra biblical traditions. It replaces. And then at the exact same time, here's what you've got to catch in our study of Luke. I think we've already seen this in our study of Luke. At the same time, Luke is making it clear that Jesus is bringing to fruition the ancient purposes of God, that the new Testament, the new covenant message is that God's purpose for the old covenant was to point to or to give a picture of the new covenants. And so let's just summarize all this with a few takeaways. Number one, the old points to the new. The old covenant points to the new covenant. Secondly, the new covenant fulfills the old covenant. The new fulfills the old. The, the old covenant, you would make sacrifices, repeated sacrifices over and over and over again, offering the blood of goats and bulls and perfect spotless lambs to die in your place for your sin, to take on the wrath of God that was for you and for your sin. They would pay that fine in your place. That was the old covenant. The old covenant points to and is fulfilled by a new covenant where a perfect spotless lamb dies in your place once and for all time because that perfect spotless lamb three days later rose from the grave. And Hebrews says in doing so, Jesus becomes your forever high priest. So there's no need for another priest ever again that would mediate between you and God because you have a forever high priest in Jesus. There's no need for any more sacrifices for sin. There's no need for penance for sin because Jesus, our perfect spotless lamb, died in our place for our sin and rose again, becoming our eternal and forever sacrifice. And so Hebrews says this, he died as a sacrifice for your sin once and for all time. So no more sacrifices are needed. No more penance is needed for sin because Jesus is our forever high priest. He's our forever sacrifice. So the new covenant, the gospel of grace through Jesus fulfills the old. And then last, the new then replaces the old. 
The old points to the new, the new fulfills the old. But Jesus makes it clear with these illustrations that the new replaces the old. And Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees who met Jesus said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9-11. through 11, He says this, how much more glorious is the new way which makes us right with God and this new way remains forever, Paul said. Hebrews, once again, says Jesus is our forever high priest, our once and for all sacrifice, for all time. Romans 7, verse 6, Paul says, Now we serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. That's how we follow God and worship God and serve God in the new way of the Holy Spirit, moving us from the inside out. So what does the old look like for you? A lot of us are gonna share some of the same experiences, but a lot of us are gonna have a different old. Old for you might be unbelief. You've never given your life to Jesus. You've been resisting Jesus. Old for you might be your circumstances dictating your faith and love for God. Old for you might be apathy. It might be addiction to a substance or to pornography. Old for you might be bondage to sin or bondage to self-righteous pride and arrogance. Maybe old for you is religious routine. Whatever your old is, Galatians 3, 27 says this, that all of us who've been united with Christ have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. And so here's the challenge for whatever your old is, take off the old and put on the new. Take off the old and put on the new. Your old garments were garments of unbelief. They were garments of apathy. They were garments of routine. But your new garments are garments of praise. They're garments of righteousness. They're garments of peace. They're garments of grace. They're garments of faith. They're garments of perseverance. They're royal garments. They're holy garments. And Paul says in Ephesians 4, so put on your new nature, out with the old, in with the new. And as followers of Jesus, this is a daily process of repenting from the old, out with the old, and putting on those new garments of praise and new garments of righteousness and faith. It's a daily process of repenting from the old and putting on the new. So take off the old and put on the new. For some of you, you gotta do that for the very first time. Out with the old, in with the new. Give your life to Jesus. Others of you that have given your life to Jesus, this is a daily process. Taking off the old and putting on the new. And then here's the last takeaway. The last takeaway from our passage today is this. The new points to the new new. The new, the new covenant, this new wine of the Holy Spirit in the new wineskins, the church through the gospel of Jesus, the, the new wine, the new wineskins, the new garments point to and are a picture of the new new that is to come. You see, while we're in a season of fasting and feasting, looking forward to the return of Jesus, this season is going to end. When the bridegroom returns for his bride, once again, this season will end. And then an eternal season of feasting will begin. And at the end of Revelation, here's what Jesus says. The old is gone forever. All of the old. Like 
all of that old weeping and crying and mourning and sickness and death and dying, all of that's gonna be gone forever, Jesus says. All of the old is gonna be gone forever. And the new, Jesus says, is going to be here. And here's what Jesus says, I'm going to make everything new. Like, like not just our hearts, he's gonna make everything new. In the new, new, where feasting will reign forever. In the new, new, you're gonna have a brand new resurrection glorified body that is not subject to death and decay and to sin. You're, you're gonna have a new, brand new city. It's called the new Jerusalem. It's gonna come down out of heaven to earth where there will be a brand new earth that is no longer subject to natural disasters and to the curse of sin. Jesus says, I'm gonna make everything new. You're gonna have a new body. You're gonna live in a new city. You're gonna be on a new earth and we are going to feast together, party together forever. The old will be gone, the new will come. The season's gonna be over and there's a season of forever feasting coming your way, Christian, because of your faith in Jesus. And so looking forward to the new, new and everything that we see now, Paul says, it's like looking through a dirty window, the foretaste of the Holy Spirit inside of us, the, the joy that we experience in the presence of God as we worship and as we pray and as we read God's word, all of those things that we experience in the presence of God are just a foretaste. They're a glimpse of what is to come. We're looking through a dirty window, but one day, that which we've hoped for will be ours and we will feast forever. And so in light of that day, we live with hope. We celebrate with hope. We mourn with hope. We suffer with hope because the new new is ours in Jesus' name. Would you pray with me? With heads bowed, eyes closed, I just wanna take a second just a moment between you and God. And I just want you to ask God, God, would you just reveal to me what the old has been for me? What, what is the old maybe that I'm, I'm still walking in, that I'm still carrying with me? What, what's the old that you're calling me out of? And by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you rescue me from the old? I can't do it on my own. Rescue me from the old and bring me into the new by the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you just make that your prayer right now between you and God? God, rescue me out of the old by the power of the Holy Spirit and let me put on the new today all over again. And then for some of you, you're not here or you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus. And at the moment, you're not going to experience the new life that Jesus has for you both now and forever. Scripture teaches you're headed to hell because of your sin. There's a fine to be paid for your sin. You've broken God's law. But today, I believe the Holy Spirit is calling some of you to turn away from the old and for you that's unbelief and to give your life to Jesus today to place your faith in that perfect spotless lamb who died in your place for your sin so that you might be forgiven of your sin and made right with God. And if that's you, give your life to Jesus right now. Jump on our app, fill out our connect form and let us know that you're giving your life to Jesus today. God, we thank you for the new wine of the Holy Spirit. 
And I pray that that new wine of the Holy Spirit right now would fill all of these new wineskins, breaking the bondage of the old off of us and allowing us to walk in the power of the new and the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like Paul said in Romans 7, we now walk with God and serve God and worship God by the living power of the Holy Spirit in this new way of the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, just move in our hearts and fill us with a love and passion for you and for the things of heaven and rescue us by the power of the Holy Spirit from the old that we continue to walk in today might be a new day because of the new wine of the Holy Spirit. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.